This week on Writers Inc. When it's time to start a new book, I spend quite a lot of time, like where I, like where you see me, like right now, like in this chair, surrounded by books, with a cup of coffee and my laptop, and just thinking about, okay, how can I develop this? What do I want to do with this? How can we accomplish what I want to accomplish here? Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's In. J.D., how was the duck boat tour? <laughs> duck boat was awesome. Um, yeah, we, we went on one in Boston, and I, I actually haven't done one of those since Fort Lauderdale in like 1990. Like it's been a really long time. Um, totally a whole, whole different experience when you've got a toddler that gets bored five minutes in and she wants to just like play in the water and she's trying to jump out of the boat. So you got to keep her from doing that. Um, but yeah, it was fun. I'm just cruising around Boston and just hearing something. I mean, I've, I've been in Boston so many different, you know, so many times I've never really heard a lot of the history and got a chance to really do that, you know, sitting in a duck boat. So I, I was just brought up, you know, with you guys before, like they, they actually didn't bring up the Boston marathon bomber or like where that actually took place. And it, it actually surprised me. And somebody brought it up at the end of the tour. And, um, yeah, I, I don't know why, but like, it just, it wasn't mentioned. So I was just kind of curious, you know, if, if you guys had ever seen that or been in Boston or if you noticed it while you were there, I, I don't know if there's a memorial there or what the deal is, but um, just seemed weird that they wouldn't bring it up on something like that. Yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't search it out when I was there. Um, so I'm I not thought sure. about bringing it up to you when we were walking around. Yeah. but I don't know why I didn't. Yeah. So mm-hmm. where did they drop you in the water? Um, you know, at that point I was holding onto my daughter's T-shirt, trying to keep her from jumping out. So I'm not quite sure. Like it was, it was a little ramp at. Um, uh, it was in the river, um, and it was near where the old lock system is. So like they, they've got an old lock system that they, they disbanded in the seventies and they built a new one. Um, so it was around that point, uh, I okay, think close so to the, the science center, like in that, that area. So they put you in the Charles river, not necessarily in like the Bay or anything. Yeah. Yeah. We just tooled around the river. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Yeah. We did know. that. My son and I did that in Seattle and, uh, it's the weirdest sensation where they like, they take you down the ramp and just boom, all of a sudden now you're in the water. Makes me wonder why every car doesn't just float. I know. You know like, I think can't they all awesome. do that. <laughs> Imagine traffic. Well, yeah, like I live on an island, and like that bridge gets blocked up all the time. That would be awesome. You know, just pull right up through my neighbor's grass or something out into the water and you know, end up in Portsmouth and, and come back. I, I'd love that. I don't know if you can buy those things, though. Now, Jay, do you guys have anything like that in Cleveland, like any of those buses or anything like that that drive around? I, or? I don't know. Like it's, you know, I, I, I don't know. When you live in the city, you're not really cued into like what the tourists do. So, I I mean, but we've got the Cuyahoga River and Lake Erie. I, I'm, I'll bet there's duck boats in Cleveland. I, I honestly don't know. I think we have them here, but all the stuff in Nashville is all based around like bachelorette parties. So they have all these like, da- seriously, they have all these like, dan- they have a dance boat that goes around that's like the duck boat, but it's just like, young girls in their 20s and 30s dancing on them and then we have the pedal tavern 
which yeah, is like I've a seen bowl. Those in you've seen those. Yeah, they had, yeah, those are real popular on here where you pedal and you it's a bar you drink on and they drive around town. Because there. what could possibly go wrong if you're on a road with open alcohol <laughs> in a yeah, mobile right. bar? Especially on Broadway here in Nashville where it's crazy. So, I don't know, but Anyway, so I'm bringing up everything other than publishing. Um, congrats to T.J. Newman. Falling debuted at number two. I just saw it on the New York Times nice. list. Nice. So. Congrats. That's awesome. Congrats. That's great. That's amazing. Yeah. What, what's going on with you guys? Well, I'm curious, Jay. I know you dove into Vela, and uh, I was talking a little bit to our buddy T.W. Piperbrook before we came on here today about it, but I'm curious, what have you, what's your experience been? I won't say what his experience was, but I'm just curious what yours has been. Too soon to tell. Yeah. Uh, they, it was so weird. It's so Amazon though. Like they don't, they don't give a date. It's just like all of a sudden, boom, it's live. <laughs> You're like, oh, okay. Uh, so I, I think it's only been up for a couple days. The reading experience right now is terrible. Like there's, yeah. there's no way to browse. Like it's almost impossible to find anything if you know what you're looking for. Um, they, they, here's the other thing they did, which I think is not great for authors. They're giving readers 200 tokens for free if you if you start reading now. So that that really undercuts royalties. Yeah, Piper Brook, Piper Brook brought that up, and he also said like they can pretty much return anything they want. Was the other big snag that he saw? Yeah. So I I don't know. Like I I have v- practically zero reads on it. I mean, a few author friends I know have have looked at it. Uh, I'm sending it to my list on Friday. That'll be a better indicator, I think, as to if people are interested in it or not. But it's all weird because, like, it's also not only is it only open to authors in the states; uh, it's only open to readers in the states. Mm. So they're launching this whole program, and it's it's really just America. Uh, so I I don't know. I honestly I, I think it's too soon to tell. I'm not like not blown away by it. Not blown away by yeah. what I'm seeing, but it's early. I honestly didn't even know that it, it launched. So like, is it using the yeah. Kindle app, or does it have its own app, or how does that work? It's it's got its own app, but you can you can read it right off the web page. Um, but again, like I, I think it's just for I think it's just for people in the U.S. So I, it's a, it's a bizarre thing. Like I don't understand if you could if you could read it off the web page, why wouldn't they make that available worldwide? Like that just I don't know. Maybe there's something with the the currency, the transaction, the tokens. Uh, I don't know. My gut says that even if Vela fails as a reading platform. I think it's Amazon's way to getting into creating their own currency. Uh, I, I fully expect this to, to happen with subscription services like, like um, you know, KDP Select and with Netflix and Hulu. Like when you start talking about tokens and coins, uh, well, it's almost like gambling. Like you, you, for, for someone who, the consumer, it's like, oh, it's not real money. I'll just, they're just tokens. Well, that's funny you say that because like my idea was because like in video games that's a big thing like you buy tokens for microtransactions for like free to play games and stuff but i i personally thought it was more to get around the ios store because on the ios store they can't sell books direct so i figured the token thing was a way to get around that on 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 iphones so um because like even if you have like the barnes and noble app or the kindle app you can't buy books straight from the app um, you can borrow Kindle Unlimited apps, but you have to buy the books from. So that's kind of what I figured. Like they could sell tokens, and then you know. So, well, yeah, just looking at it objectively, like as a reader, is this something you guys would would use? Like if you weren't writing content and you know you were just looking for something to read, is this something you would go towards? Or, or uh, I don't know. I wouldn't, but I don't think I'm the 
I don't think I'm the target market for Vela. And, and the reason I wouldn't is I can't get it on my Kindle, and I yeah. hate reading on a computer screen or a yeah. phone. I can't read on either of those devices. I can in a pinch, and I think with this, I feel like I could because it's short. Like, I feel like in short bursts I could read on my iPad or on my phone. But I'm like, Jay, I definitely prefer to read on my Kindle. Like, that's – that's why I have it. That's like my dedicated reading device. But yeah. there's a lot. I know a lot of people who do who will read on their phones and their <clears throat> their tablets. So and I mean, so there's definitely an audience for this. I mean, there's that whole Wattpad audience, which is I'm sure is kind of what they're going for. So yeah, I, I personally I don't know that I would I would pick this up and and read it only because I, I like knowing that there's a, an end in sight on a on a book or a story. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's plenty of people that watch soap operas every day and like they've been going on forever and they're for they're decades. Completely, yeah, yeah, and all yeah. Up there. So there's there's definitely a market for it. Like you just brought up Wattpad, you know, like that generation is is getting a little bit older, so they might be leaning towards this. But yeah, I, I don't get why it's not available on Kindle. Like, they, I mean, they've got all these things already in place, so it can't be difficult to flip a switch and you know, and make, make it work. But, um, for whatever reason, you know, maybe they bought this as a separate company or did, you know, different division, or they plan to spin it off or, or something weird like that is keeping them from, from, you know, jumping on existing technology and, and forcing them to create their own. Well, um, so isn't it heavy on social, like commenting on the stories and stuff like that? Yeah. Cause that's it, where it could be difficult on Kindle because typing yep. on the Kindle sucks. It is. They, they encourage author notes, um, yeah. which is different than like reviews. You know, it's a, it's a different mindset for an author. Like you're encouraged to interact with readers. They're encouraged to socially share. Um, so yeah, I, you know, it's, it'll, it'll be curious to see what happens, but like I, my approach was I had like half of a season already written for another project. It didn't require a lot for me. And I know JD, you've talked about this many times about how when something new pops up, you just get on it because you just never know. You know, you right. can you can kind of have a first mover advantage. So I honestly don't have very high expectations for anything that's happening right now. But uh, I, I think it could be seeds for things that might come later. Well, plus you can go to Kindle after 30 days, right? Yeah, I think you can. Once you unpublish, I think, I don't know if you have to unpublish or not on Vela, but then you can publish on, on Kindle as a book. Yeah. So it's kind of a win-win. I mean, yeah. you know. So probably worth giving a shot. Plus, you never know. Like, maybe Amazon is thinking about, like, with the next Kindle they release, maybe they're thinking about incorporating this somehow. Could so be. That, you know, there could be something. And that's when they're playing on really doing a big launch for it or something. You never know. Yeah. I was listening to uh, Dead Robot Society, just another podcast, and they were talking about this. And they brought up that it could actually be used to create prequels to books that are already out mm. um, to come up with some storyline, throw it out in there, and, and lead people to your, your Kindle books. Um, I think one of my biggest hangups is that the material is not going to be, I don't, I, I'm guessing, not as clean as a, a finished novel. I mean, there's no copy edits, there's no you know, real proofreaders probably going on. I think a lot of material is probably just going right up there before it would normally go through those stages. Um, and I personally would just have trouble reading that because my editor cap goes on. And you know, I start putting commas where they're supposed to go, and I, I get totally taken out of the story and try to fix the story instead of actually enjoy it. Um, so yeah, we'll see. I mean, kudos to Amazon point. for getting out there and, and trying something new. You know, absolutely. I, I think yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's I approached it like a book. So I ran it through my normal editors and proofreaders, and I have for I, I'm, there's two serials I'm working on. One's in Vela, one might be in Vela, but both of those I I treated them like books. So I know, you know, I, I use the same process. I agree with you, JD. I, I would not want to, like, I understand there are people who are like, oh, I'd rather just have that story every week. And I, I'll, I'll look past those typos and things. I'm not one of those readers who can do that. 
Yeah, I think there's also something to like what JD said about not having a definitive end. Like, I think that comes back to the author too, because like TV shows have definitive ends usually. I mean, like, so if you if you're playing all, it out, all of them except for Lost, well, or The Walking Dead. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Most good shows have, have definitive ends. So, like Breaking Bad, you know, is like five seasons. So, like if you're planning it, you know, you could be like, well, I'm I'm gonna plan for three, four, five seasons, have a definitive end, and still give a full reader experience. Yeah, but that's I'm sure actually, a lot of people won't do that. So. That's actually an American thing. Um, like Spanish soap operas, they tend to run for I think it's three years, but they always have an ending in mind. So, like those most other countries, on, on they everything's got an ending plan before they they film that first episode. Uh, here in America, we just don't we don't plan that far ahead. <laughs> it's just easier just to, to throw a polar bear out there on the island and let somebody else figure it out. It's wow, there's a, a lot of rabbit America. holes we could go down on that one. I'm just gonna punt. <laughs> <laughs> America just throws things out there and sees what happens. Yep. Yep. Uh, so why don't we give a shout out to our wonderful sponsors over at Kobo Writing Life. Uh, Kobo empowers you, the author, to take your self-publishing career into your own hands. Kobo doesn't just throw stuff out there and see what happens. They plan things. Uh, they allow you to set your price, keep your rights, and they have wonderful promotional opportunities almost monthly. And the best part is you don't have to be exclusive to Kobo. So make sure you check them out at KoboWritingLife.com. And if you are interested in becoming a patron of the podcast and submit questions for our monthly Q&A episode, you can do that at patreon.com slash writersincpodcast. And that, J.D., brings us to our guest this week. This week, we've got Riley Sager coming back. Uh, appearance number two for his new novel, Survive the Night, which I, I know you enjoyed. I thought it was his best one yet. He's, he's just getting better with, with, with each book. Um, Phenomenal read, um, and I, I love that it's actually set back in the 90s, um, which we can talk about a little bit on the, the flip side of this, I'm, I'm sure. Um, but there's, there's just something to be, you know, that whole isolation factor, you know, like that's kind of gone in today's world. But back in the 90s, you know, nobody had a cell phone, and, you know, you could get stranded pretty easily, and you had to rely on yourself to, to get out of that one. Um, so, I mean, that was the perfect setting, I think, for this particular book. Um, makes me curious what, I actually don't know how old Riley is. I'm guessing he's around the same age as, as we are. Um, and I, I know what my demographics are, and I'm guessing his are very similar to that, which is, you know, primarily women 45 and over. Um, so I think a lot of people are going to see that, you know, those, those particular callbacks and really, really enjoy those in, in, in this book. So, well, he, he's about the same age as two of us on the podcast. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I had I had hope when you said he was right when we were talking about the nineties. So but. Well, Zach looks so much older than us, I just I always lump him in. There <laughs> I mean that's not too. far from the truth to be honest <laughs> with you. So you know, it's all good. I'm gonna so. get myself in trouble. Here he is, Riley Sager. This might be one of my top three books of all time. Uh what? Oh my gosh, no, thank you. No joke, man. <laughs> I could not put this thing down. Um, it is beautifully simple and stunning. Um, and I'm sorry, man. That, I guess that's not a question, but I <laughs> kind of don't know how to no, open thank this. <laughs> if, if we do a half hour of this, I'll be, I'll be great. <laughs> Tell me more. Oh, so we're talking about your, your brand new book called Survive the Night. Why don't we set it up for everyone so they can kind of get a sense of what we're talking about? What's the premise? Sure. Survive the Night is about a college student named Charlie. And she, her best friend and roommate has been murdered by a man known as the campus killer. And so just grief stricken and guilt ridden, she just cannot stay there a moment longer. So she wants to go back home to Ohio. And 
it takes place in 1991. And one of the weird things about that time period was in college, if you didn't have a car and you wanted to get home, you would put your name and number on a ride board in the hopes that a stranger would contact you and say, hey, get in my car and I'll drive you close to where you need to go and we'll split the cost of gas. And so Charlie meets a man named Josh at the ride board, agrees to get a ride with him because he's going in the same direction she's going. And as soon as they hit the highway, she starts to suspect that Josh isn't all he says he is. And in fact, might be a killer himself. And so she finds herself in this sudden dangerous situation in which there's really no escape because there's no cell phones back then, no GPS. You couldn't call an Uber. So she's just in a car speeding down a highway at night with a very potentially dangerous man. Love it. Yeah, that's that's a great, succinct uh, summary of the premise. So much to unpack. I, I think I want to start by asking you how much of this journey is autobiographical? None physically like i had a car in college so i never had to use the ride board <laughs> but I've, I've heard horror stories not quite as horrible as what happens in survive the night but some pretty stuff you know when you're in a car with a stranger for like sometimes like five six hours and you don't get along with them they can get pretty tense uh but the character of charlie is probably the most like me than any other character i've written because oh. I was a, like Charlie, I was a film studies major in college and I would escape into movies. And, you know, that's, that's still today. Like that's kind of my happy place. If I'm, if I'm feeling down or stressed or if I'm sick, like it's just crawling into bed and watch a movie. And Charlie takes it to extremes, but she, she has a very similar mindset that as i do and especially did back then in 1991 did you make that trek across interstate 80 through pennsylvania at any point i make it all the time <laughs> I, I i live in new jersey now and my parents live in central pennsylvania and the fastest way to get home is to hop onto interstate 80 and drive through the poconos and so when I came up with this idea, it was a no brainer. I'm like, I don't need to do any research. <laughs> I've driven this stretch of highway literally hundreds of times. Um, no research necessary. So it was all pulled from memory. Well, and it's, you can tell, at least I could tell it was completely authentic because my, my, well, who would become my wife, we lived in New Jersey for about seven years and both of our parents lived in Western PA. So we always had a choice. We could take 78 or we could take 80, but 78 was tolls and, and we were broke. So we almost always, always took Route 80. So even the fact that, that Josh was going to take 80 instead of 78 or the PA Turnpike, I was like, that's spot on. Yeah. And, and for, for people who've like, you don't necessarily need to know this stretch of highway to enjoy the book at all. But I think those who have traveled that stretch of road often will be like, oh, yeah, I know exactly this area right here. I know exactly what's going on. And I just thought it would be fun for this very niche audience of people who, who drive I-80 through the Poconos. <laughs> this book was written for them. <laughs> uh, the 
the fact that it's said in 1991, I, I, I think you, you handle it masterfully because I've read some contemporary genre fiction that is trying to play the nostalgia card. And, and that's not what this is. Uh, I think 1991 can almost be a character in this book. And, and it really creates an atmosphere without sort of infringing on the storytelling component. So how did you walk that tightrope? I think it was just me. I mean, I was a senior in high school in November of 1991. And that is a period of your life that you will always remember, like with, with crystalline clarity, like all the music and the TV shows and what was going on in the news and all of that. And I didn't want it to be like suffocating. I just thought it would be, let's have some, let's put a, a you know, a needle drop here of a song that people know that will, like, if they know the song, it'll establish a mood and let's reference this movie. And, and let's, you know, it's, so it was really, I wanted to just, to use a cooking analogy, just season it with 1991 and not make it like this overpowering taste. Yes. And uh, I think you've certainly accomplished that. I mean, that, that, that came across clear to me and I was really intrigued. I went, um, you know, I was looking through the Amazon page and uh, the, the short synopsis on the page is it's November, 1991. Nirvana's in the tape deck. George HW Bush is in the white house and movie-obsessed college student Charlie Jordan is in a car with a man who might be a serial killer. Uh, can you tell me where that came from? Was that mostly the publisher, the editor? Was that you, uh, collaboration? That was me. That was part of my initial pitch to my editor. Like, when it, when it comes time to do a new book, I like to write just basically one page about, in general, what it is and where I think it might go. And almost write it as if it's jacket copy. And I guess I do a really good job of it because like most often than not, that becomes part of the jacket copy. But I just, I really want to just set the tone for my editor in the very first sentence to make her excited about this book and for her to be like, yes, this is going to be your next book, write it. And, um, I loved it when I came up with that. I'm like, Ooh, this is good. Like, people are going to want to read this based on this paragraph. I, I often hear that from, from writers who say like, it's easier to write a novel than it is to write like jacket copy. And, and they typically will hire someone or, or have someone else do it. Do you have a, a process or a way you approach that when you, when you're pitching these ideas to your editor? It, it risks prompt when it's time to start a new book. I spend quite a lot of time like where I like where you see me like right now like in this chair surrounded by books with a cup of coffee and my laptop and just thinking about okay how can I develop this what do I want to do with this how can we accomplish what I want to accomplish here and then it is like okay I'm going to write it down what the goal quote-unquote for this book is and Sometimes it's easier than other times. This for Survive the Night, it, it happened pretty quickly. For I forget which book it like I think it was like Last Time I Lied, where it was like days it took me to write like four paragraphs about what this book is going to be about. And um, it's it's a good little guide to use, so my editor knows what to expect from me, and 
And so I know what to expect for myself too. And do you, do you tend to create these pitches all within a, a, a similar structure so that it's apples to apples? You know, I, I could imagine if you, if you pitch your editor like two sentences versus another one that might be two paragraphs, there might be a subconscious weight applied to one or the other. Yeah, and sometimes I, I always like to include like a little like six-word pitch at the bottom of it when I'm done. So it's usually like a full page of just here's here is what the jacket copy could read of what I'm intending to do, knowing that it will change. And then here's like a one sentence you can use to sell it to, you know, marketing. And for this one, it was a girl, a killer, a car. And, and that was that really boils down this complex book into six words quite effectively. Yeah, it, it certainly does. And, and I, I think, too, you know, as as I was reading it uh, and as I'm sure you do this as well, you know, you're, you're reading as a reader, but you're also reading as an author. And I'm just marveling at the fact that this is there's no Game of Thrones effect. There isn't like 17 different countries and, uh, you know, a, a major cast of 50. You've got a couple characters in a car and yet I couldn't stop. Um, it, it, was that a challenge you posed to yourself? Is that something that just came out of the, the natural evolution of the story? It was definitely intentional. Um, after Home Before Dark, which was so complex and the, the dual timelines and the book within a book and it, it, it damn near broke me like finishing that book in time because it was so much more difficult than I thought it was going to be when I came up with the idea. And so I wanted to go in the complete opposite direction. I wanted as stripped down a narrative as possible. And there was, you can't get more basic than two people in a car playing mind games with each other. Really. And, and, then the challenge became, how can I make a book out of this, like a full length novel? And in what ways can I keep the tension going and the suspense going when most of the book is two people in a car? Yeah, I, I certainly don't want to spoil anything, uh, but I know that last time we talked, you had said that you were. Uh, a pretty pretty good outliner that you you tend to have an idea of where the story is going to go. Did you don't don't say what it was, but did you know where Josh was going to end up at the end of this story? Yes and no, and I know that's like such a non-answer, but there's I I knew the end game. Like I I I really have gotten away from outlining now because I like having a bit of freedom and spontaneity. But I like also knowing destination. It was a traveling pun. But so I need to know where the, the final destination is. How I get there now, I leave it kind of up to discovery. And so there were certain things in the writing of it that I, I knew, okay, this is exactly where this character is going to end up. And then there were other parts where it just happened as I was writing and I just started noticing things in the writing like, oh, there's something this could be. I think this is heading here. And that's quite a surprise to me, but I guess I'm going to go with it. Why the why the move away from more formal outlining? 
it really became um well for two reasons like home before dark because of the nature these two narratives were so intertwined that i had to outline everything like start to finish to a t and the writing of it wasn't as fun it was following this pre it, it, it's like um it was like painting by numbers you're like okay i'm putting the blue on number two and this and it, it got kind of boring but then also i noticed in my past couple books where i'd outline and then halfway through start veering off in a different direction and then try to pull myself back in and keep following this outline laid out for me even though i knew it wasn't working and then I would end up having to rewrite a lot because the outline led me astray. And so I started to kind of not trust the outlines that I created for myself and decided, you know, what, let's try to just go with the flow and, and, and see where it takes me. And so it was, it was enjoyable to do. Yeah, I could see that. Uh, this is probably not an entirely fair question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Uh, it's kind of loaded. Um, setting this in 1991, as you mentioned, there's there's no Uber, there's no cell phones, there's no maps. <laughs> um, you know, even though you, we were within a civilization, you could be really alone, like truly alone. Do you think we're the last generation that will have that experience in modern life to be completely and utterly removed um, from from other people? I think so. Yeah, it's it's startling. It's weird, like because I've lived through all of it, like 30 years ago doesn't seem that long ago. But to some people who have been born <laughs> and are now adults, like in that span of time, like it's inconceivable to them how we lived back in 1991. And I remember I was a senior in high school. It was a Saturday night. I was driving home and my car broke down in the middle of nowhere. And Today, someone would call their parents or call AAA and done. I had to get out of the car and walk down this isolated road at night to the first house that I encountered, knock on their door and say, hi, my car broke down. Could you let me, a complete stranger, into your home so I can use your phone <laughs> to call my parents? And like... They did because that's what people did back then. And I remember like as a kid, like someone breaking down near our house would like knock on our door. It's like, hi, can I have your phone? That would have been today ever. And it, it strikes me like just how weird that is to have lived in both eras of that. It's, it's like survive the night too. I think you just came up with your premise. <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> I really did. Gosh, <laughs> right. Jotting that one down. <laughs> no, I, I, I had a similar experience. I was a sophomore in college in 91 and my friend and I were going to meet at a party and he never showed up and he was my ride home. And, and I can remember like this, was, you know, that's how you met your friends. Remember you agreed to, to be somewhere at a certain time yeah. in a certain place and, and he didn't show up and I was, you know, I had to walk to a payphone and I didn't have change. And like, it was a whole, it was a whole odyssey. And, and you're right. Like even, not even my kids who are teenagers, but j just people in their thirties probably don't have that level of experience. So I'm wondering like, how do you think they might read this book set in 1991? 
That's a good question. And I, I mean, I don't make a habit of looking at Goodreads, <laughs> but I, and, and the reviews that are there, but I, I have noticed that there were some people who they've said like, why is Charlie so stupid? Why is she doing this? Like who would do this in their right mind? And the truth is like, everyone did this like 30 years ago, everyone did this. And so I think there is a bit of a, a generation gap in how this book is being perceived. Like people who were high school and college age in the nineties, they get it. They're like, Oh yeah, this is, this is my jam right here. And I think people who maybe weren't born until like after 1995 are just thinking she's making a lot of questionable choices right now. <laughs> Do you think the medium do you think it, be, it could be interpreted differently based on the medium? I, I know you're a, a big film buff. Like if Survive the Night hits the big screen, do, do you think that would have a different effect versus reading it? I think so, because then you'd be able maybe to show more about the, the, the time period. And part of the thing for me is I really wanted to get them in that car and on the road as fast as possible. And so... I didn't want to spend 20 pages explaining the campus atmosphere in 1991 and all of the, all this kind of ride board inner workings. And so I just was like, okay, this is, this is a thing that people did. Trust me. Let's get in the car. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's uh, the, and I think that's, is that's so important to recognize as an author because even from what you just said or, or from the, the jacket copy that you wrote, you've created an, an irresistible open loop. <laughs> you've said there's a girl getting in a car with a possible serial killer. Like that, that, that I mean, how do you not, like, how do you not want to find out what happens? Uh, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> from, from, from the author's perspective, though, I know for me, I would feel rushed to get there. Like, I want to deliver, I want to deliver that outcome so badly. Like how did you pace yourself through the telling of the story? That's a really good question. And I'm, I, part of it was I wanted to test myself and maybe test the readers a little bit and just see truly how long I could keep these two people in this car before things get totally insane and things get insane in this book. But I, I, it was a, a little game of playing with myself. Like, okay, they're still in the car. Things are still tense. Now what wrinkle can I come up with to keep them in the car and even increase the intensity another notch? And it was, it was really enjoyable. And I kind of wanted to stay in that car even longer, but I knew that at some point readers would be like, okay, get out of the car. <laughs> Yeah, you have, uh, again, I won't spoil, but there's a moment where Charlie isn't sure if she heard a certain song or not that was that was playing on uh, on the stereo. And uh, as you were coming up with these, were you, how are you pushing past the most obvious ones? I mean, I would have to imagine that when you get two people in a car and you're trying to ratchet that suspense up, there are ideas that come to you and you go, nah, nah, that's, that's not, nah, nah, that's not good enough. Like, how did you keep escalating that? Was there a process to that? It was once I figured out Charlie's particular, I don't know what to call it. Um, <laughs> it it's, and it's, it's not a spoiler to say like 
Charlie is very, very psychologically scarred. And one of the ways she deals with is, is through movies. And when things get too stressful for her, she kind of has these, they're, they're hallucinations, but she calls them the movies in her mind. And her brain just flicks a switch and it's like a movie starts and it helps her deal and process with what's going on at that moment in time. And it's good because it helps her and it's bad because it makes her doubt things. And when you're in a situation like this, the last thing you want is to be doubting yourself. And she does. And it was a fun way to play with, okay, is this really happening? Is this a movie in Charlie's mind? Is Josh making this up? What is going on? And it just, it was a really great way to keep the reader off balance because some of this might be happening. Some of it might not be happening. Some of it could be a lie. And it just, it really was this whole series of escalating mind games of, of two people just speeding down the highway. Yeah. Do you, do you have any plans of, of writing a screenplay for this? I do not. Um, I would love to write a screenplay one day of an original screenplay. I do not know how authors who adapt their own works do it. Like I, it, it, it seems impossible to me because you have to leave stuff out. Like you can't just transcribe the book into a screenplay form. And I wouldn't know what to leave out and what to keep and what to change. And some authors do an amazing job of it. Um, Jillian Flynn's adaptation of Gone Girl is just a masterclass in adaptation. And I, I would make a mess of it. So <laughs> I know, and I haven't been asked, thank God to like, at, to be like, would you write the screenplay for this? Cause I'd be like, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> so the, the, uh, headings, the screenplay headings in the book, are they there for more, mostly aesthetic reasons? Yes and no. There's a <laughs> there's there is a definite reason why they are there. But I also thought I love it when people play with like chapter structure. Like I'm as a writer now, I'm very bored with the whole chapter one, chapter two. It it so when it I knew that movies were gonna play such a big part in this book, so it seemed natural to I'm gonna make the chapter headings just where they're at so instead of chapter two it's interior car night <laughs> and that was that was almost that was a title i was considering like just interior car night oh. but then um interior chinatown by charles Yu came along and such a great book and so he also uses a sort of like a similar screenplay format he actually does the dialogue in screenplay format oh, as well wow. which is yeah very interesting okay so how did you land on survive the night? It was quite a process um, with, with titles. What I come up with is never what my publisher <laughs> <laughs> likes. So there's always like this, this back and forth where we're just batting around, like sometimes up to like a hundred different titles where it's just like, we're literally just, it's like those little magnets, like on, with like different words on them and you form sentences. It's just like, this word and this word and this word and, and survive the night was one of many that I came up with and it just seemed to fit the best. Cause that's, that's really Charlie's goal here. 
survive this night. And it, it, in a way, it poses a question to the reader, which is, will Charlie survive the night? Again, it's that, that masterful open loop where it's like, how, how do you not want to find out? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it, I'm, I'm really proud of myself for coming up with this concept because there are some concepts that take a little bit to explain before people get this one. And this one was like, here it is. And most people's reaction is, yeah, I want to do that. <laughs> Sign me up. Nice, nice. I want to, uh, uh, in a few minutes we have left, I want to circle back around uh, and ask you if you have any updates on Home Before Dark. When last time we talked, um, you were a bit cryptic about where that where those screen rights might land. Uh, some updates on that. I'm still cryptic. I do <laughs> not know. Like um, the, the, the pandemic threw all of Hollywood into turmoil, like development wise. And so the option was agreed upon literally like two weeks before the pandemic hit. And so I don't even know if they've had time to develop anything yet. I'm, I'm very hands-off when it comes to the adaptations because I love movies. That's well-established. I know nothing about making them. And I just know that Hollywood is weird and it's scary and I don't understand it. <laughs> and so the, the less I know, the better off I am. So with, with every book and every option and adaptation, it is just, here you go. If you have questions, feel free. I'm here. But Godspeed. And, you know, if anything important happens, tell me. <laughs> So that's really how it, how it still is. Yeah, that's that's probably good for your mental health too, not to be too engaged in that process when you really don't have a lot of control over it. Yeah, I I don't. Another thing I don't get is authors who, you know, like Megan Abbott was like executive producer or like showrunner when her adaptation of Dare Me on USA. And it's like, how? I just I I wouldn't I literally wouldn't know how to even start this process. And so, it is best for me to just sit back and hope for the best that people get something made and it's good. Yeah. 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 Well, great. Uh, last question for you. Uh, if as much as you can tell us, what are you working on now or uh, what, what kind of story premise you got in mind to, to follow survive the night? I can't say anything except <laughs> that it, it's, it's written. It's with my editor. And now this, we're going to get better. And that's all I can say because this one is going to be, it's crazy good. Like I, w I will say that. Like it's it feels weird. Like because I think Survive the Night is crazy good, but this next one, which I cannot say anything, is super crazy good as well. And it's it's surprising. I think people will be very very surprised with what I do in this book. And so my lips are sealed. All right, man. That interview smelled like Teen Spirit to me. <laughs> It smelled like something. I think you made him a little uncomfortable at the beginning with just like flaunting over his book with him. Like, Dude, I, I was being totally sincere. I, I was just blown away by this book. I'd love to hear what your guys' take is on I'm, it. I'm mad at you because it seems like every week, especially lately, you guys are adding to my TBR pile. Like I'm just like, oh my God, I have another book I got to read. I don't so, know. Jay was Jay was getting all fanboy. I wanted to make him step back behind the velvet rope. Like, like please, please step back, sir. I was creeping him out. I, I think. Yeah. 
Well, when you start off your hook on your sales page, Nirvana's in the tape deck. You've already got me. Yes. Like, yeah. The fact that it's in the 90s and, you know, as uh, as JD brought up beforehand, you know, it's just a different time where we didn't have cell phones. The internet was at its, inf- like, I remember my mom, I was, we were joking the other day when I was at my parents' house, I was telling my mom, I was like, I remember when you were, I would just go out rollerblading, which is totally 90s. And, and you'd be like, hey, you better always be five minutes from a payphone if I hit you up on your pager. <laughs> you know, it's like that's the most 90 sentence I could you could possibly say. So, yeah, it's I, I haven't read it, but this definitely sounds it sounds amazing. And it doesn't surprise me that uh, you put it in your top three books of all time up there with uh, The Road and Fifty Shades of Grey. It doesn't really <laughs> surprise me at all. So Jay's go to novel. Have either of you ever gotten stranded or, or anything like that? Like, I, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, we, you know, we talked. Riley mentioned it in the interview about breaking down. Um, I, I, I think guys like our age, JD, have a lot of stories of breaking down pre cell phone, and you just like you had to start walking. <laughs> I mean, yeah. what, what else could you do? Like, you either you either sat and waited, or you started walking. And I remember I broke down on a on an overpass one time. Like coming, this was after my wife well she wasn't my wife at the time we were dancing out at a club it was like 3 30 a.m and and i got a flat tire on an overpass and i'm like there's no way i'm just gonna sit here at 3 30 a.m and see what happens and so yeah i walked a mile in the rain to you know call a tow truck are you guys familiar with um alligator alley down in florida no i've heard of it i don't know much about it it's gotten better over the years but back in the 90s it was it was a two-lane road that crossed the state so basically starts at four Myers on one end and fort lauderdale on the other um literally nothing in between no gas stations no rest stops no nothing um other than alligators which is why everybody called it alligator alley i I actually broke down uh coming home from college on christmas eve at i think it was about 11 30 at night the the whole electrical system in my car and the car was a pontiac ferro by the way which really brings back the 90s um the electrical system fried the car just kind of coasted to a stop you know no flashers no nothing um so i ended up flagging down a truck driver at 11 30 at night hopped in his, his semi and he took me to fort myers um got a cab from there to the airport then had to make my mom come and get me you know like when i finally got to a phone um drive you know the hour to, to fort myers airport so yeah that was the world that we lived in back then but you know when you're writing a horror book like that's that's where you want to be right like it's it, in today's world you know your car breaks down you hit you know find a friend or you jump on your cell phone you've got triple a there and you know 20 30 minutes and you're back on the road or you call an uber or whatever but none of that stuff existed back then and that that's half the fun with a book like this i was uh, gonna say yeah. and, and i think that that's like really something to think about so like part of the reason i love writing post-apoc is for the same reason because it's really easy just to get rid of all that stuff the phones the internet all that stuff but like if you don't want to write that you know i mean because think about how many older movies that are great wouldn't work today like home alone home alone would not work because he could have just like got on facebook or got on picked up the phone and called somebody you know um and there's there's a ton of those examples but like just and especially now, because, you know, we saw with Stranger Things and stuff, you know, like the 80s nostalgia was coming back. And um, I don't nine maybe the 90s is next or maybe that's already kind of happening. I don't know. But like it's a really good way to kind of be able to write that kind of book and take some of these modern conveniences out of it with while making it look natural without being too speculative. Yeah. You know, and Riley didn't lean too heavily on the nostalgia and I really respected that. Like he, it was story first and the the, the nostalgia was, you know, was the, the frosting on, on top of the cake. And I would love to know, like, I, I think that's such a brave choice to say like, okay, this is the story. It's two people in a car. 
And just to kind of, as an author, to maintain that intensity through that kind of story is an incredible challenge. Yeah, I wanted to touch on that, too. I mean, he, he said that he did this because it was easier than his last book. And I get that because his last book was, was very complicated as far as plot goes. Um, but for me, anyway, a, a small cast is, is tough. You know, like my, my current book, I was trying to set the entire thing, you know, from um, first person point of view with one character telling the entire thing. Um, and I got maybe 70, 80 percent of the way through and I ended up having to add a second POV just to get it done. Um, and you know, we have, I, I have to mention Stephen King in every episode and he, you know, he brought up in, um, I think misery was, you know, more or less a two person cast. So he figured then the next one, he did Gerald's game, which was, you know, one person, a woman handcuffed to a bed all by herself. Um, I think his wife had joked with him, like the next book is going to be about a toaster or something like <laughs> not even a person involved. Um, but when you've got nobody else, you know, where there's no dialogue happening, like nobody else to bounce stuff off of, that's tough. And, you know, just containing it to just two people for an entire novel for me anyway is, is tricky. But he, he did a phenomenal job. I mean, every second that ticks by, that, that tension just escalates and escalates. And, you know, you're sweating by the time you finish up that book. Yeah. And it pays it's also off so well. The, and yeah. not even just a small cast, but you're also saying, like, again, I haven't read the book, but it sounds amazing, but... It's and it takes place in a car for like the whole like for so, most of it, yeah, yeah. So like you're not just just two people, but also you're not really switching the setting. <laughs> so I can imagine that's uh, yeah, that that's even crazier. Yeah, he brought up that he's he's gotten away from outlining a little bit too, yeah. which is you know it, it sounds like he's doing something very similar to what I do, which is you know you have your beginning, middle, and end, and maybe a couple stops along the way in in your mind, but otherwise you just kind of let it go. Um, it's interesting to hear somebody like that do that because I know how much plotting he had to do and, you know, outlining for the last one. And I'm, I'm pretty sure he was outlining, you know, all the books or he, he did prior to, to this one. So it's kind of neat just to hear that evolution. I, I, that's, that's eternally fascinating to me, whether it's interviews for this podcast or just talking to authors in general, is that how that process changes. And, and I honestly don't know if I've ever talked to an author who does the exact same thing for yeah. every single book. I think it almost always changes and evolves and and i kind of feel like that's probably how it should be and i could see with the book like this where it's just two people in a car for most of it like it would be hard to outline scene by scene as opposed to just having these tentpole events and then you know letting your characters take you to those you know with the dialogue and with stuff going on so like that it makes a lot of sense to me but it, it is I'm with you. It's interesting, like, because every book for I mean, is a little bit different, you know, and I think it's like that for most people. So well, I think he kind of hit uh, the, the nail on the head when he mentioned that it's sort of like paint by numbers when you've got that outline. Like you know, if, if you're if you're plotting it out and you're putting an outline together, like you get this really cool idea for a particular scene. Like for me, I want to just write that scene, you know, like when I'm, when I'm hyped up about it and excited about it. If you just put it in the outline and you revisit it three months later, you know, that intensity might be gone from you and, and you, know, you got to try to recreate it. Uh, but everybody's different. You know, I, I think we, we talk to a lot of novelists that are early in their careers. I think that's why you see that evolution happening. And, you know, they're, everybody's still trying to tweak their, their, their process and come up with what works for them. Um, but, you know, like if you listen to the interview we did with uh, Jeffrey Deaver, you know, like he's been outlining forever. He's got a very, you know, a detailed process that he uses. And I don't think he's changed it since like his second or third book. Um, so I think once people actually find that particular rhythm where they're comfortable, then they, they fall into it and they, they stick with it. But, you know, for those of us that are five, 10 novels in, you know, we're still trying to figure that out. That's an interesting observation, JD. And I, I've been thinking about that. Like I, I've seen, I don't, I don't know if this is a U shape or an upside down U shape, but I almost feel like for me, I, I kind of started off as a pure pantser and I was like, cause I know what I was doing. So I was just going to write. And then I kind of found story structure and it took me, 
10, 12, 15 novels to kind of really internalize story structure. And now that I have that, I'm moving more towards the pantsing side again. So it's almost like this this curve that happens, at least for me, where I didn't know anything and, and now it's internalized and I don't necessarily need the same level of structure that I did five books ago. Well, if you understand the structure and, you know, if you, if you read a lot, that structure gets ingrained in your brain, whether you want it to or not, it's in your subconscious. I think that that's key because then you, you, you mentally know when something is, is going astray or when something should, you know, happen or, you know, third act should start here. Your brain just sort of knows that those kind of things need to take place at certain times. Um, so I think that's that's very helpful for the people that don't read a lot that still want to write. I, I think books on structure, you know, like you guys did three story method. Um, there's a lot of really good ones out there for, for that. Uh, I've worked with a lot of mentoring students, um, particularly way back in the day when you know, I first started doing the book doctor thing. You know, people that wanted to write that didn't know the structure. And those were the books that were 300,000, 400,000 words long and just kind of kept going and going and going. Perfect for Vela, <laughs> but but not necessarily for a, for a, for a printed book that you actually want to, you know, want to sell to a publisher um you know you, you need to know where that endpoint is and i think the, the more you do it the easier it gets just like anything else but you need to understand that framework on some level to be able to get to the finish line yep cool well i obviously really enjoyed the book and the interview with ryan <laughs> yeah, it was so. a great interview yeah. <laughs> uh, i don't necessarily need to add a- anything to that uh any any last thoughts guys or we I just on. want to throw out there, you know, he's been on the show before, and if you want to hear his path to publication, which is a pretty fascinating one, I went and looked. He was at episode 35, so you got to go back a little bit. But um, it's really cool to hear how he got started, too. Yeah, that that's from a, a meta standpoint. As the podcasters, this is really fun for us once we have that initial interview and we get the origin story, and then we get to go deep on something. And we have a few authors coming up who are like that, so... Uh, yeah, it's it's a good reminder that if that if you're hearing uh, about Riley for the first time, go back and listen to that interview, and that'll that'll help you put this one into context. Yeah, absolutely. All right, what do we got next week? Next week it's Q and A, right? Q and A next week. Yes. So if you are a patron of the show, make sure you get your questions submitted. You'll be hearing from Zach about that relatively soon. So uh, get those questions submitted. And as always, we'll look forward to uh, knocking those around next episode. All right. So to our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.